this whole idea of, you know, the internet took decades. The reality is AI has taken 70 years, <laughs> seven decades. And, and there are milestones that have enabled this moment to all of a sudden happen. So, you know, people are thinking like, oh, the AI thing is just going to take off way faster. Well, yeah, it's taking off way faster because cloud exists and we can do this compute through Google or Amazon or Microsoft. NVIDIA chips exist because they started building them for video games 20 years ago and realized that the GPUs could do deep learning. Um, the advancements in AI research labs, the transformer paper, like all of these things are the infrastructure that now enables this to happen seemingly overnight. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 60 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Kaput. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Paul. Welcome back. You were traveling this weekend, I believe, out in the West Coast. I was. I was in Portland, Oregon, so... Not back. speaking, right? This was like no. This family, was just family event. stuff for for traveling once for for personal reasons in the last. <laughs> there you go. Two, I, right? I don't remember what that's like <laughs> for personal reasons. Oh uh, yeah. All right. So it is uh, Monday morning, August twenty first. So this episode will come out on August twenty second, and uh, there's a lot going on. I mean, to the point where we were seriously considering uh, a second episode this week, but we're gonna plow forward and, and get it all in, in in one episode. And we may be revisiting this idea of a couple times a week as we get into the fall. We'll see. There's just so much going on. And again, sometimes it feels like a slow week. And then, I, I mean, our like I've, I think we've said before, we, we keep a sandbox in Zoom where we just post links throughout the week. I think there was like 60. Like it, it was <laughs> it was crazy. There were a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I was messaging Mike yesterday, probably as he's flying back from Portland, like, hey, we might... <laughs> We might need to split this up, but all right, we're going to, we're going to definitely move quickly through the rapid fire items to make sure we get to everything, but there is, there's a lot going on in AI. All right. This episode is brought to us again by the Macon 2023 on demand, uh, where we have 17 keynotes, panels, and breakout sessions that are available right now on demand include the state of AI for marketing and business, which was my opening keynote. The amazing fireside chat with Ethan Mollick beyond the obvious. I still like, I, I got to go back and rewatch that. I, I did the interview, but I haven't watched it since. Um, Ethan just continues to pour out amazing content. And I just mm. want to go back and kind of relive that moment. Uh, Cassie Kazarkov from Google, whose job does AI automate, Chris Penn on language models, Dan Slagan on the org chart of tomorrow, just a, a bunch of incredible content. So uh, if you want to relive that, if you were there, or if you want to check it out because you were not able to join us in Cleveland in July, just go to macon.ai, that's M-A-I-C-O-N.ai, and right toward the, the, the top of the page is a Buy Macon 2023 On Demand button. You can use AI Pod 50 for $50 off. So again, macon.ai for Macon 2023 On Demand. And with that, Mike, let's dive into our three main topics and our, I think there was like 16 rapid fires. <laughs> so we got a lot to cover today. We'll move fast. So first up, AI is going to eliminate way more jobs than anyone realizes. That's at least according to a new in-depth article from Business Insider. So in this uh, kind of in-depth article, the publication rounds up a bunch of data points and facts to support this theory that AI could disrupt over 300 million jobs worldwide, but at the same time, add trillions in value to the economy. Now, like I mentioned, there's a ton of really interesting stats and data points in this article we're going to dive into from various authoritative sources. One of them that jumped out to me is the fact they say that non-generative and generative AI both together are estimated to add between 17 to $26 trillion in value to the global economy. Now, 
as we've said before, anytime we analyze any type of report or stats or predictions, it's really, really hard for economists and technologists to predict exactly what's going to happen next with AI. However, this article is really notable in the sense that it does a solid job of kind of curating some of the current thinking from some of the top minds and institutions. So if you have not been following the more recent analysis of AI's potential impact on employment and career skills. This does a really good job of getting us up to speed of where everyone's heads are at in this debate. So I want to kick things off and just like, let's talk about the elephant in the room right away. Like how many jobs are we thinking we are going to lose thanks to AI, either as this article outlines or kind of in your opinion? So this is obviously a topic we've been talking quite a bit about in recent months on this podcast. And previously, we mainly looked at the United States. So, you know, I've, I've shared the stats before. There's 132 million full-time jobs in the U.S., 100 million are knowledge workers, people who think and create for a living. About 10 or 12 million of those are for private equity-owned companies that generally focus on efficiency and cost reduction uh, as a driver of growth uh, and profitability. So, you know, I think we've said millions uh, is kind of like generally what I've said is like it it appears as though there is the possibility of millions of jobs being lost. Um, What was interesting to me is this does broaden this to the world realm, which I had not uh, dove into the details there. So you mentioned the World Economic Forum estimated 83 million jobs worldwide could be lost over the next five years with 69 million jobs created, leaving 14 million that cease to exist. Uh, and the World Economic Forum also says 44% of workers' core skills are expected to change in the next five years. I, I think that number is low, the, the mm. 44%. Okay. Um, well, I, I guess, again, it depends on how they're classifying this. But when we look at knowledge work, so again, in the United States, 100 million I feel like it's like 90%, like Mm. everything everyone does in knowledge work is going to be changed in the next five years. And I just, I find it so hard to project out beyond, you know, one to two years. So five years is just, I mean, we might have GPT-7 five years Mm. from now. And like, what does that even mean? Mm. So I think a, a key takeaway, you know, up front for this is the number of jobs, no one's going to get this right. They may be off by 30% one way or the other. But the point is, it seems almost indisputable that there will be massive disruption to jobs. Now, we'll get into like, you know, what could more be created or not. But my whole point is, we need to be talking way more about this topic, because there is absolutely the possibility, if not the probability that we lose more than we gain in the very near future. And so like I put this on LinkedIn on Sunday morning, and as of the recording of this podcast, there's 36,000 impressions of this post and 48 reshares and almost 60 comments. So this like obviously, you know, captured some people's interest. Um, And so you get all these like arguments about, well, you know, people are wrong all the time about these prognosis. That is 100% correct. They are almost always wrong about these things. Um, but the thing that often seems to be overlooked in people's arguments that this isn't going to cause a loss is when you drill into these very specific instances, like we've done on this podcast before, it's to take writers, take graphic designers, take software engineers, whatever it is. My whole argument and concern is that we might just need fewer humans doing the existing jobs. So It's not that the AI can do the job of an engineer or a writer or a designer, like full, full, full autonomy. It's not replacing the human, but if you can gain, you know, they cited, I think like almost 56% or so, I forget what the number was in terms of efficiency. uh, Here it was a study out of MIT found software developers completed tasks 56% faster with generative code completion software. And another study found that professional document writing was 40% faster using generative AI. Mm. Those are massive gains. So if you work in an industry or at a company where you can just increase the output, where there's demand for the product you create or the service you provide, that you can just do more, then you don't have to have any job loss. 
But if your demand is relatively fixed or increasing incrementally, and your ability to do that work quickly is almost on an exponential, mm. then you need fewer, fewer people to produce the same level of output. And so that's my concern is that in the next one to two years, the job loss is going to come from these companies that just don't need as many people doing the same job and work. And, and then that leads us into the next debate of, you know, do, do more jobs get created, basically? Yeah. So talk to me a bit more about that, because they do say, you know, 69 million jobs will be created. Now, again, it remains to be seen exactly what those will be or who will be equipped for them. But it sounds like there are opportunities that AI won't just make our existing work more productive, but will create new opportunities. I mean, is that kind of how you also see the silver lining here? I do believe it will. I think over the next decade, you know, when we do start to think out five to 10 years, there's gonna be all kinds of career paths that we just can't comprehend right now that mm. don't exist. I don't know what those are going to be. I've yet to really see a really solid prognosis of what those career paths could be. People largely just rely on the fact that when these kinds of disruptions happen, when general purpose technologies emerge into the world, it generally creates jobs. I think they had a stat in there that something like 85% of the current jobs didn't exist prior to like the industrial revolution or something like that, mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, yes, over decades, we did recreate entire career paths and industries. So that will happen. I just don't see it happening on the same time horizon as the job disruption and the loss. So I, I think it'll be a longer tail of creation of new jobs. We talked about in one of the previous episodes, this idea of an explosion of entrepreneurship. I, I do believe in that. And I think that is going to create a lot of new jobs and career mm -hmm. paths. But again, they're, they're just going to need fewer people to build businesses. So like we talked about with the Institute, you know, we have five employees. We just hired two more. So we're at seven functioning as a team of probably 15 to 20 right. because we just, we function differently. We're using AI tools in, in all these different ways. And I think that's the future of organizations is you're just going to be able to build more nimble, um, few, like less capital intensive businesses from the ground up faster, cheaper. And so I think we're going to see a lot of those, but I don't know that it nets out to where those create more jobs. So I, I think that's my, my concern is not that the AI is not going to open up all these possibilities. It's just, they won't open up as quickly as the jobs are going to maybe go away. Now, I, the other caveat we've talked about previously is there are industries that can't hire enough people. Mm -hmm. and, and so that might offset this a little bit as well, like accounting and insurance we've used as examples. Like they, just, they can't get enough people for the roles right. that they have open. So in that case, AI is not even replacing anybody. It's almost filling a, a capacity need in industries that lack people wanting to go into those industries. Yeah, at least it should be noted in the US, we're still currently at record low unemployment. Correct. I mean, we're already having- And you can't hire enough people. Right, right. So a lot of that could absorb some of this. And right. Yeah, I was just like, I, I think the, what people have raised, like, we are not economists. I took a bunch of economy classes or economics classes in college, uh, but that was a long time ago. And I studied the economy, but I'm not an economist. We are not working in these AI research labs. We're observing, reading research papers, following people. Like, we are not like- the expert in any of these, but yet what I'm finding is when you go synthesize all the information from all the people who are the leading economists in the world and the mm -hmm. leading technologists, they don't seem to have a clue. And, and they're like, they come up with all these numbers. And that's why I thought this article was so good. Is it just like summarized, like curated all the top things. And that's why on my LinkedIn post, I was just kind of calling out the things that jumped out to me. But what becomes very clear within this is it's completely uncertain that the, the top minds in the world in these specific areas don't have a clear perspective on what happens next. And that's why my whole takeaway was we just have to talk more about this. We have mm. to have dialogue about it. We have to have people in different industries and different professions thinking critically about what this means to them and their industry and their company, because we're not going to solve this as two guys, you know, talking on a podcast, but my whole point is like, we need to advance the conversation because it is critical that this is happening, even if it doesn't result in job loss, which is what I hope happens. Mm -hmm. We have to be aware of it and trying to solve for it so we don't get caught when it all of a sudden is here and we didn't do what we needed to do. 
And it sounds like not only could this happen faster than a lot of people think, like they actually mentioned, you know, when the internet kind of came along and hit mass adoption, that required software, network protocols, all this infrastructure and devices. So it took a long time for every home and office to have all these personal computers and internet access. But the article argues that today AI's adoption could happen much, much faster since this tech infrastructure to run it is really already in place. So it sounds like not only could this happen a lot faster, than we anticipate, but also like, are we ready for this as a society, as businesses, as policymakers? Yeah. I mean, the, this whole idea of, you know, the internet took decades. The reality is AI has taken 70 <laughs> years, seven decades, and, and there are milestones that have enabled this moment to all of a sudden happen. So, you know, people are thinking like, oh, the AI thing's just going to take off way faster. Well, yeah, it's taking off way faster because cloud exists and we can do this compute through Google or Amazon or Microsoft. NVIDIA chips exist because they started building them for video games 20 years ago and realized that the GPUs could do deep learning. Um, advancements in AI research labs, the transformer paper, like all of these things are the infrastructure that now enables this to happen seemingly overnight. So again, it's like, it is, it kind of runs parallel to the internet. It's like, we had to have all this infrastructure and people are thinking it was just there. It's not, it took years to build, but it is there now. And, and so, yes, this can happen quickly because we have the ability to do this stuff. And, you know, I think the thing we ended with uh, in my summary and, and with the article was this idea that, no, we're not ready because we're not putting enough into training and reskilling people. They said there are 43 uh, federal employment training programs, this is in the United States, um, whose total budget is 20 billion or less than 0.1% mm. of the US GDP. Uh, and then they said this is an alarmingly trivial amount for an economy of 25 trillion GDP and over 150 million workers. And then they talked about the idea of potentially incentivizing retraining through tax credits like New York and Georgia that could spur employers to take action or if they can use you know tax money or grant money to do this upskilling retraining. Um, so I, I do think there are answers to this, but we're not going to find them if we don't talk about it. It's right. kind of my whole point of making this a main topic today and putting it on LinkedIn yesterday. So we just have to have more conversations. So another really important conversation to have is AI's exciting and very uncertain impact on schools. So in the U.S., at least, kids are in full swing right now going back to school here as our school year starts. Um there are equal parts excitement and uncertainty as schools everywhere are trying to grapple with all this chaos and opportunity provided by AI tools like ChatGPT. So we're actually seeing much more kind of in our circles, more schools releasing policies or guidance on the use of AI in the classroom. But these policies and guidelines are very, very different depending on who you're looking at. So some schools are cracking down on AI use in classrooms. They're restricting how students are able to use it. You can get punished for using it in certain contexts. Other schools appear to be taking some positive views of the technology, and they're trying to help guide students and educators on how to make the most of AI tools in a sensible way. So we just kind of wanted to explore a little more in depth on today's episode what is going on with some of these policies, what schools might want to be thinking about what's happening, just given how quickly AI seems to have upended education as usual. So Paul, you also posted recently about this on LinkedIn, and you asked your network if schools, their kids' schools have AI policies in place. Like, what did you learn from that? Uh so first off, I just want to say, let's be understanding of the position administrators and teachers are in right now. Mm -hmm. This is a really complicated thing. We as business professionals, as marketers, as executives, we're struggling to understand this stuff and we're more living it daily and, and even experimenting with it daily. So we're asking administrators and, and teachers and professors who have other things to deal with um, to all of a sudden also understand AI. So I just want to be clear up front that while what we're going to talk about here is challenging the system a bit and, and encouraging them to take faster uh, and more thorough action in this area, it, it's unrealistic probably to expect them to solve this on their own. Mm -hmm. So what happened is I had <clears throat> about three weeks ago, I think, a buddy of mine shared uh, 
uh, a high school policy. And that was the first one I'd seen. And then I think, you know, Tracy in our office, her, her um, children, young kids, they had an updated policy that she had to sign off on. And so that kind of triggered for me. And then I've had conversations with universities. I've had conversations with uh, leaders of high schools. And I've also talked with uh, leaders of middle schools. So I've had all this context. And then I saw those and I realized like, oh my gosh, we're like school is starting in, in parts of the United States in like a week when I was mm. first thinking about this. And I realized like there was no uniformity of how this was going to be handled in school systems. Um, so I, I did put on LinkedIn and Facebook. I might've put it on Twitter too. Um, and I was basically asking like, yeah, is anyone seeing handbooks? So like uh, updates to the handbooks or specific AI policies? The, the general response has been no, like mm. nothing. Um, and there was a, even on Facebook, I have friends who are teachers in middle schools and they said largely, no, we don't have anything yet. So imagine these teachers who you know might be anywhere in middle school or even into high school, or even professors who are going into school right now with no guidance on whether or not AI is cheating or not, mm. how they're supposed to teach it in the classroom. You know, it's 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 a very unrealistic thing to put them in. It's an unfair position to put them in. But again, having talked to the leaders of a lot of these schools, I realized that they themselves don't really understand what's going on or what the implications are to the future of education and the future of work. So couple of, of notes. So the first is most kind of have nothing. Um, there was an example I saw from a, a sixth to eighth grade handbook updates. And this just basically said cheating is defined as, and there was like three things. One of them was using AI to complete assignments. Mm. That's a, that is all it said, it was like very broad. So for me, that's a, um, a, a useless policy. Like it, it, it's, there's obviously lots of categories and variables to the use of AI. Uh, but then it does go on to say plagiarism, as an example, using AI to create work and claiming as your own. It's like, okay, well, I mean, claiming it as your own, I, I, I guess I could see that if it wrote. But again, it needs more detail of what exactly that means. So here's an example where they did update a handbook, but it's so general that it's almost of no value. Like mm -hmm. it, it creates more confusion. Um, there was another <clears throat> uh, person that posted, I think this might have been a high school one. It just said uh, any use of generative AI result in a disciplinary view. That was hmm. the entire update. Uh, a high school, it said students may, at the administration and faculty's discretion, learn to use AI text generators and other AI-based assistive resources, uh, AI tools generally, to enhance 21st century learning. However, AI use can constitute academic dishonesty and plagiarism in many cases. It's like, okay, like that. I like that they're at least saying, hey, we understand this is a key to the future, but then it goes into saying, you must cite AI tools when used, even if only for ideas, mm. not terrible, but it doesn't tell you what happens if you do it, since you're not allowed to, because it says students may not use AI unless permitted. So they're basically saying like, you're not allowed to do it, but if you do do it and you're like given permission by the teacher, then you have to cite them. So it's like, okay, that's, that's not like awful. Um, it does go on to say, use it to deepen understanding and support learning, which is good on the surface. It says teachers will seek to understand how AI tools work and optimize value for student learning. So my perception right now, based on these kind of guidance, again, this is all under, this is actually under an artificial intelligence policy, a separate policy that was sent to parents, is that we may allow it to use it, but our teachers don't understand it. We're not explaining to you how they're going to learn this. We're just saying they commit to learning it in some capacity, meaning this is probably going to be very isolated. So you may have a teacher or a couple at this school that choose to figure this out for the good of their students and to prepare them for their future. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to have a whole bunch that want nothing to do with this, that outlaw it completely in the classroom and don't want to hear anything about it being used, no matter if it's good for the students or not. So it just seems like this is going to be poorly applied and unevenly distributed, as we like to say, the benefits of AI will largely depend on who your teacher is and whether or not that teacher chooses to understand AI. So to me, while heading in the right direction, this seems very problematic. Um, so, and then they do say employ AI detection tools where appropriate that the teachers will use them, which we know don't work. 
So now the guidance teachers are being given is use Turnitin or whatever other tool to identify whether something was written by AI. And we know that kids are going to be falsely failed and accused of things that they may or may not have done, um, but it's going to create all kinds of friction. So if me as a parent who understands this stuff gets, you know, a letter home that my, my child used AI and they therefore failed this thing, um, we're going to have problems. Like it's going to create all kinds of friction between parents and administrators and faculty. That's not necessary. Uh, so the, the thing I always say is like integrated and honest use is the key. Like we should be encouraging them to use it and teaching them the capabilities of AI and, and using it to advance what the students are able to do and how they learn. But that if the administrators and teachers don't understand it, how are they supposed to teach it? So I think it's, sort of irresponsible and counterproductive for schools to ignore the potential and just label AI as cheating. Mm. It, it kind of shows a complete lack of vision for what we need to be thinking about for these kids. So I don't know, like, I, I don't know if sometimes inaction is even better than some of the action, like it's, mm. but I, I, well, what I've told some leaders is like, I don't see how we get through even the first half of this school year, like uh, till the turn of the calendar year. I don't know how a school doesn't have some formal policy or point of view on this stuff. Like, it just seems like we are running into an absolute train wreck of cheating scandals that were or were not cheating scandals of accusing uh, accusations of plagiarism when it wasn't plagiarism. And, and it's just going to create so much confusion and friction that is unnecessary right now. So Given how fast all this is moving, what can schools be doing to try to get more prepared? It sounds like w at least one step is realize that AI detection tools are not 100% accurate, probably don't build policies around those. Are there anything anything else they should be doing or thinking about? Uh, I mean, I think they need to look to the associations and the organizations that are are leading the way in this in education and, and we'll we need to do more ourselves and, and maybe in future episodes we'll curate some resources for people but i have seen solid like here's you know ai curriculum in classroom that you can be using um here's ways that you know you know template policies that are for the good of the student like i think we need more of that where there are these places that people can look to. We need formal education and training for teachers and professors so that they arrive at kind of a, a level benchmark of understanding of this technology. Um, and then we need more sharing of kind of best practices. So again, some of this may be occurring at, and I kind of assumed it was mm. at like the association level of teachers and administrators and things. But given the lack of policies in schools, now I'm questioning whether or not it's as wide scale as I assumed it was. And I'm kind of leaning in the direction of there's no uniform effort right now being made in education to solve for this, given how many schools I'm seeing that have nothing. So I just think we just, we need more urgency to get some things in place to help these students versus, mm -hmm. you know, just taking the initial action of just accuse them of cheating. And again, they're probably using these things. I know they are at all levels without permission. Um, and maybe they are writing papers. I'm sure they are and helping with their math homework and all these things, but they have no guidance of what they're allowed and not allowed to do. So of course they are. I One other quick analogy, somebody, this came up in a, a university. I was having a conversation um, recently with some university leaders and someone equated it to telling someone in like 2000, you're not allowed to use Google mm. for your homework. Like you have to go to the library and take out the encyclopedia. You, you, it's cheating to use a search engine. And I, I believe back at that time, that was how some professors and administrators saw the internet was it was cheating if you used that. And it feels like that's where we are again. It's like you have this in, incredible knowledge base and resource to help these students. And you're just going to straight up tell them it's cheating because it's not what you're used to. It's different. Um, and that has proven time and time again throughout history to be the wrong approach. And I, I just... I would encourage people to take action in the direction of integrating it in, in honest ways and using it as teaching tools. So in our third main topic here, the New York Times is actually exploring suing OpenAI over 
the use of its articles to train AI models like ChatGPT. This is according to some reporting from NPR. Um, basically, the Times is considering taking this action because um, ChatGPT uh, competes with it by answering questions using the paper's original reporting. That's what the Times is concerned about. They are also concerned that if AI tools replace visiting the actual news sites, this could threaten the New York Times' business. They're also generally concerned, like many publications are, about how open AI systems get information by scraping the internet and potentially scraping copyrighted material in order to train models. Now, according to NPR, the Times and OpenAI have actually been discussing a licensing agreement to move forward where OpenAI can use some of the Times' content to train its models and provide answers through ChatGPT, but NPR seems to indicate this has gone so badly that the Times is now considering legal action. One other really interesting note here, NPR says that if OpenAI is found to have violated any copyrights in this process, federal law allows for the infringing articles to be destroyed at the end of the case. In other words, if a federal judge finds that OpenAI illegally copied the Times' articles to train its AI model, the court could actually order the company to destroy ChatGPT's data set, forcing the company to recreate it using only work that it is authorized to use. So first up, Paul, can you just put this into context for us? Why is this potential lawsuit, we should note it is potential according to people disclosing details to NPR, it has not happened yet. Why is this such a big deal? I assume this is being leaked by someone on the Times side just to let OpenAI know they're very serious mm -hmm. about these negotiations. It, it just seems to build on topic. It was either one or two episodes ago. We talked about the New York Times you know, pulling out of the AI coalition and that Google had licensing deal in place. The New York Times for $100 million was what it was rumored to be. And that this was the future of these language models that these companies know that there is the chance that there are some lawsuits that could make it through and that they could be found that they did infringe on copyrights. And so it seems like the logical play is build the next version of these models on licensed materials, um, properly licensed materials. And so this just seems to verify that that is indeed what's happening. These language model companies are trying to find um, valuable sources that they can do licensing deals with. And the media companies are trying to, you know, play hardball, but they're also viably concerned about the future, or the, the, they're concerned about the future viability of their business model. Mm -hmm. So if, if like right now, GPT-4 isn't connected to the internet, unless you're using Bing, but if I go in there and I can in real time ask questions about something that happened yesterday, and it's curating from sources, including New York Times articles, and it writes me an amazing summary that is factual that's the next step for these models you know in two to three years where the hallucinations are gone and they find ways to make these things as factual as you know the best elements of the search engines and what do i need to go to the times for um that's a really valid issue and so you know i think these media companies are aware that the, their future well-being is threatened if these things get really really good at doing real-time synopsis of what's going on and so it just, yeah, it seems to validate that we're looking at future models that are much more responsible about licensing of the data that they train on. Uh, there's probably a massive race right now to do deals with all the top media companies and publishers. And uh, the threat of, you know, destroying the model, while not probably realistic, like I, I just don't see that as a an outcome that would result from this. Um, it's certainly an interesting leverage point because mm -hmm. the OpenAI can't go into the model and just extract New York Times data. It's it's in there. It's embedded. They don't. They can't get it out. So we talked about this before. Like you can't unlearn things. They don't know how to make the models unlearn what it's learned. So this is really more about I think the future versions of these foundation models and the data that they're trained on in a more uh, legal and ethical way, probably. So we're saying it's not going to be likely that OpenAI is going to be forced to destroy any type of data set here. I, I think that seems very unlikely, but this is going to take 
years and probably end up in the Supreme Court. Not this case in particular, because again, it's just the threat of a lawsuit. But there are other related lawsuits that are moving forward. Um, and I, I do think that we'll have some sort of landmark case that defines what these models are allowed to train on, what they're not allowed to train on. And it, I, I would guess that has to happen in the next, you know, probably two years. Like it's, this is a really critical topic and these models are going to keep moving forward. And it seems like the language model company's current play is just be proactive and license as much of the data as possible and then pay the fines for whatever they were found to have done illegally in the first versions of this technology. Gotcha. So the way forward seems to be uh, licensing deals combined with kind of ask forgiveness for what's already been done. Pay some fines and move on. Figure out how to get, you know, let the artists benefit from it. That's the other, it's like, I don't know, class action lawsuit kind of thing where, but then how do you figure out whose work was used? And mm. I don't know, this is, I, I've said many times half jokingly, but not really. IP attorneys are like, it's the safest profession in the world for the <laughs> next 10 years, because there's going to be so many messy things that have to get worked out around all of this stuff. All right, let's dive into a bunch of rapid fire topics. We're going to move pretty quick. We have a ton of them on the list today. First up is the well-known venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz has unveiled an exciting new open source project. They're calling this AI Town, and it's basically a simulated virtual world that lets developers create their own AI-powered environments and characters. So this is inspired by recent Stanford research on generative AI agents. So basically, they're creating these little sandboxes where AI-generated characters can evolve organically and essentially have unscripted conversations, take unscripted actions, and essentially retain memories of those conversations and actions, which develops really distinct narratives over time that kind of are totally organically spinning out of the interactions between these agents. So Andreessen Horowitz actually created this uh, in tandem with one of their portfolio companies and are open sourcing this so that developers can go build on top of it their own mini AI worlds, essentially. So are these AI simulated worlds kind of the next big thing we're going to see here? Uh, it definitely seems like one of them. And we talked about this with the Fable, I think was the yeah. example I used in my Maycon keynote where they trained it on South Park episodes and then these characters sort of develop and evolve. Um, yeah, I mean, you could see massive uses for this, you know, specifically like video game industry comes to mind where right now, you know, these characters are largely rules-based in terms of how they, you know, do their conversations. But you, know, you can think about like Pokemon, for example, or, mm. you know, any of these action games where the characters continue developing even when you're not in game mode, when you're not playing and they're living their lives in the villages and the towns and you show back up and their experiences are different. And I mean, it, it's the Truman show in essence with <laughs> AI. I find these quite disturbing because I know that they're um, efforts towards AGI, like, you know, creating almost these, world experiences for these characters or these AI agents. So they're learning from things around them. They're developing very human-like traits. Um, it's a wild world. It's probably a space I, I need to dive into a little bit more and, and try and understand what's going on and the intentions behind it. But I think you're going to see an explosion of this sort of thing and, and a lot of different applications for it. So next up, a company we've talked about quite a bit, Anthropic, is raising an additional $100 million from a South Korean telecom company called SK Telecom. And they're raising this money specifically to build a custom large language model for the telecom industry. So this basically will be customized towards that particular business, that particular industry, and be much more tailored to telecoms than the general language models on the market today. So Anthropic has raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, actually 1.5 billion in total. This is the latest effort, but it is, I think, the first that is really customized towards building a specific LLM for an industry. Now, do we expect to see more companies kind of directly funding industry-specific models here? It's definitely one of the assumptions about the future that we've been making that you would these models would go vertical with proprietary training sets. 
And I think that's when they can start to be more reliably used in customer service and sales and marketing and operations and things like that. So yeah, I, I would imagine that these different language model companies that, you know, to date have largely been com competing on these kind of horizontal capabilities where they're all building things that can generally create any kind of language. And um, in some cases like inflection pie have conversations about generally anything mm -hmm. now imagine them being able to be trained on specific data sets and for specific capabilities. Um, I, I absolutely think this is where it's going to go. I think in the latter half of 2023 and certainly into 2024, we're probably going to see an explosion of these things, both the, the existing foundation model companies, and then probably a whole bunch of startups that are building like vertical specific, either on open source models or um, I guess starting from scratch. So as we know, there's a pretty extensive uh, writer and actor strike going on right now in Hollywood, and AI is a huge part of this story. So Hollywood Studios offered screenwriters a new deal on Friday, uh, this past Friday, that includes concessions on artificial intelligence. So major studios have agreed that writers, not AI, will get credit for screenplays. Though writers are still working on securing concessions that guarantee AI won't also impact their compensation. Now, there's a bunch of other details unrelated to AI in the New Deal, which we won't get into here. But how likely do you think it is that regardless of what deal is reached, that studios moving forward avoid their use of AI or use AI totally responsibly to augment the work of actors and writers? I just don't see how it doesn't significantly disrupt this industry like you, i don't know what's going to be in the final agreement but it kind of goes back to the you know thing we talked about with the job disruption it's you know if these things can take any genre or any you know existing movies and you can feed it as the context you know prompt and say write me a script based on this and you have the whole history of all the characters and everything that's ever happened, mm -hmm. or you you're starting from scratch and you're envisioning this world as a producer or director. And you're just saying like, what, what could happen? And you can instantly get draft scripts or concepts and build them like scene by scene. And it, it just changes the way you can do this. And so the question just becomes, do we need as many screenwriters? Um, and, and, and I don't, I mean, my instinct is probably not. Like, mm. because this goes to like, well, are we just going to make more movies, more shows? Maybe if, if Netflix and Hulu and Disney and, and Amazon Prime, like all if if demand is infinite for content, then maybe we don't get rid of screenwriters. We just make way more content. That's a that's a possibility. Um, but I think those are kind of the two scenarios. You, you know, demand remains relatively stable for movies and shows. And, you know, video shorts and things like that. And so we, you know, just use the same screenwriters to do it um, or we need fewer screenwriters or there is almost infinite demand for content. And so, you know, we don't have to get rid of any of the screeners. We're just going to double the amount of content that we create as a studio. And then you get into the other aspect about the virtual beings and, mm -hmm. the, you know, the extras being cloned and then just being able to like simulate extras in, in scenes and you don't need as many actors. I don't know how you avoid that. Um, that that's, a, that's a tricky one. And I would think that's a pretty solid sticking point in the negotiations, but I haven't seen exactly how they're planning to address that. But I don't know. I mean, it just sure seems like this industry is going to be disrupted quite a bit. Mm. So Google actually recently announced some upgrades to its AI-powered generative generative search experience, which is SGE. This is its AI-powered search results that we're seeing roll out across the main search engine. They now have the ability to hover over definitions in AI responses about different topics. So you can hover over underlined terms and words to see definitions, related images. If you are asking coding questions, AI overviews now have color-coded syntax, highlighting certain code snippets. And they've also launched an, an experiment called SGE while browsing in mobile and desktop search. This generates key points and questions on long web articles, letting users jump to relevant sections faster. So this is all available in their search labs where you can opt in and give feedback to get access to some of these features. So Paul, what were your thoughts seeing some of these updates in SGE? It's interesting to see it just keep evolving. And I haven't seen any solid reports yet about 
people's experience and how people are responding to the search experience, uh, you know, changes. Uh, I've personally been testing them on my uh, on my personal Gmail. Again, we don't we don't have access to it in our organization account, um, but you know, I think it's everyone's waiting to see how this is going to impact search and organic mm-hmm. traffic. It's a major uh, question mark for media and for publishers and for marketers, brands that rely on organic traffic. So I think everyone should probably just continue to test and export themselves and keep an eye on what's going on uh, in this space because it's going to affect all of us for sure. Yeah, definitely go test it out if you can, because it's worth seeing how this is going to impact everyone. So Google is actually also reportedly testing some AI tools that could become essentially personal life coaches, according to the New York Times. So they're actually evaluating over 20 different life and work assistants to help you do a range of things like get life advice, get help planning things, do tutoring, and more. So this is actually really interesting um, as a shift for Google because earlier uh, in December of last year, safety experts actually warned Google that chatbots like these, ones that are highly you know, personal and emotional and helping you with complicated topics, could cause people to become too emotionally attached to them. So on one hand, a really cool idea, an application of AI. On another, something that might have some pitfalls. Are these a good idea in your opinion? I mean, is Google getting more lax about safety considerations here? Good or bad, I think it's inevitable. This is what's mm. going to happen. And so- you know, if you if you haven't tested Inflections Pie yet, if you want to feel what this is going to be like, go go there and start telling it about yourself. So it's just pi.ai. Inflection we've talked about before. They've raised 1.3 billion. Uh, that, that's what it does basically. I mean, it mm-hmm. just asks you questions, and you can talk to it about your mental health. You can talk to it about you know you know wanting to create a healthier lifestyle. You can talk to about anything and it's meant to remember those conversations and and learn about you as an individual. So definitely, again, when we look to the future and we make some assumptions about what it looks like, everyone having a personal assistant does seem to be um, a part of that future. And maybe, as we've said before, a symphony of personal assistants that specialize in certain things like trip planning and health advice and marriage counseling and whatever it is like they're there's going to be assistants trained to do these very specific things. You can get GPT-4 to do these kinds of things if you know how to prompt it. And you can certainly get inflections pie to move in this direction if, again, you you know experiment with it. But I do think that um, these tools that are custom built for very specific personal assistant use cases is absolutely a part of what's going to happen in both your personal life and in business. So you'll have an on-call advisor in business and you know, something that functions almost like an attorney that knows all, 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 all business law. And you can ask these questions in real time. And that's why I say like, you know, these industries have, have to realize what's going to happen. You know, if you're in professional service of any kind in accounting and in, in, in law um, marketing, people are going to have real time access to AI advisors that do everything like that, have all of the knowledge we have. And what does that mean to the future of our industries? And if, you know, when do you give your kids like on the first time, when do you give your kids access to something mm. like this? Like there, there's so many ramifications of this kind of technology that we're not even talking about as a society um, that need different backgrounds, sociologists, psychologists, uh, ethicists. Like we, we just need more conversation around stuff like this because it's just going to be out and available to the world and we're not going to be prepared for it. I'm excited in some ways about this kind of technology. I think it could be extremely helpful, but I also could see it having a lot of downsides to it. So we've talked quite a bit in the past about Jeff Hinton, who is one of the godfathers of AI, and he used to work at Google on leading edge AI topics. He actually left Google because he wanted to speak openly about the dangers of AI technology, partially AI technology he helped create. And we actually found this past week a new interview with Wired where he expands on some of the reasons he's worried about AI. 
He says a number of different points in the interview about this, but some of the main ones are he thinks that AI agents may become smarter than humans within five to 20 years. He thinks an advanced AI could hide its full capabilities from humans. And he says that basically he didn't always used to think this way. His perspective changed because he realized a few different things, that chatbots can understand language really well, they can share knowledge easily, and they have superior learning algorithms when compared to human brains, at least in his opinion. So he's not totally pessimistic, though. He is worried about the future concerns of super smart artificial intelligence, but he also sees some ways forward where you know, AI doesn't necessarily get out of our control and is developed responsibly. One of those is using analog computing versus digital uh, AI computing to build these systems. He claims there are some serious advantages to doing that that would prevent some super intelligent system from going off the rails in the ways that he fears. So, Paul, there's a lot to unpack here, but does anything like really surprise you about these further details he's giving or kind of more of, is it more him building on what he's been saying in the past, you know, since the beginning of the year? Yeah, I think he came out without a clear messaging platform and plan. It was more mm -hmm. of just to raise the alarm. And it seems like he's starting to hone his messaging. So again, like going back to my public relations background, it's like now he's getting some guidance or working himself on how to convey what it is he's worried about and what his plan is to help. The five to 20 years, uh, the, the 20 years seems surprising in a way because just past weekend, I listened to, I think, three different podcasts. So one was with Mustafa Solomon, the founder of Inflection. It was the Have a Nice Future podcast from Wired. Uh, Jan Leike, who's leading the Super Alignment Initiative at OpenAI because they think super intelligence is possible within four years. I think 10 years is their far out, but they're planning for four. And then... Uh, Dario Amade, the CEO of Anthropic on the Dwarkesh podcast. Um, and then Ahmad Mustak, who's the CEO of Stability AI on the Peter Diamandis Moonshots Mindsets podcast. So I was listening to like deeply into what these people are thinking. And across the board, uh, they, they all seem to feel like this human level AI, this AGI, if we want to call it that, it, it is is within reach now, like within the next, you know, three to five years. So I, nothing surprises me, but I would say that his concerns and are, are being shared by a lot of the leaders of these major AI companies, uh, if not uh, more aggressive timelines for this to happen. So while again, in the past, we've said, you know, I think this threat of to humanity, the existential risk to humanity of AI is is probably more than the average person needs to be worrying about right now. Um, I will say that there does seem to be kind of uniform agreement that we're heading into a really precarious position if we don't figure out ways to um, solve for the threats of AI beyond just the obvious misinformation, disinformation, you know, downfall of democracy and election cycles kind of stuff. <laughs> So some interesting developments on the legislative front, the bipartisan Create AI Act was recently introduced in Congress, and this is a law that would establish a national AI research resource, giving compute and data access to academics, nonprofits, and startups. So at Stanford University, there's a highly influential group called the Institute for Human-Centered AI, HAI, and they're strongly advocating for the passage of this law. Um, what did you think of this proposed legislation? It seems like their HAI at least is saying that, you know, it's very good to get all the control out of the hands of profit motivated AI companies. Not that it's bad. They have some control, but they cite the fact that most of, if not all of the industry breakthroughs are coming out of these companies and not out of academic labs. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a huge proponent that the U.S. government, again, you know, I know we have listeners around the world, but you know, I think any government in particular, the U.S. in our case, uh, needs to take a moonshot on this. Mm. Like they, they have to be making, you know, unparalleled investments in into this, you know, on, I guess on par or greater than um, 
you know, the, the moon program and, uh, probably the Manhattan project. Like, I, I really think that it's important enough to the future of society that they should be putting every resource possible into finding ways to do this. So, yeah, I don't know if there's, you know, I haven't studied the create AI act deeply, uh, to know if there's elements of it I don't agree with, but I think conceptually we, we need a, a nationalized approach to AI technology. So we've also talked about on this podcast quite a bit, Ethan Mollick, who's a leading voice in AI. He spoke at our Macon conference. Um, and specifically, he talks a lot about AI in higher education, but he also does a ton of like consulting and advisory for companies trying to apply AI. And he tweeted recently something that seems like a pretty important point. Um, he wrote, a lot of the advice on implementing generative AI at companies ignores the speed of improvement in foundation models. For example, McKinsey's options for CTOs implementing AI call for a year or so of development work. He says, I have talked to companies that built on GPT-3. They regret it. So he's really kind of talking through the length of time it takes to implement some of these models and how quickly they improve. Can you kind of unpack for us what he's talking about here, why this is really important for companies? We've touched on this idea before of one of the great challenges ahead for businesses is what language model or models do you build on? Mm -hmm. And what is the time horizon to do that? Who's involved in the organization? We've seen large enterprises where marketing's racing forward, doing their own thing. Meanwhile, the CIO, CTO are working on some bigger play for you know an organizational wide LLM. Uh, I think that just it just highlights further this the challenge. You know, if you're relying relying on someone like a McKinsey to do this, and you're spending a year and five or ten million dollars to build something, and two versions of that language model may have emerged since you started the project. And so just this idea that we really need a lot more open dialogue within organizations solving for this, and then how you make these plans dynamic that builds in the fact that these models are going to keep improving and someone may launch while you're building on GPT-3, someone may come into your industry and launch a better vertical foundation model for your industry. And now all of a sudden you just spent $5 million building on top of GPT-3 and there's something better. So it's going to be really challenging um, not that tech hasn't always evolved, but it's never evolved at this speed to where there's such a dramatic difference in some cases between like a version three and a version four or four and five, um, because these things are doubling in their capabilities every like 12 months. So it, it's a really challenging space to navigate right now. So we've kept tabs on some of Adobe's AI work with its Firefly generative AI model, and they recently announced they're rolling out new AI features in Adobe Express, their cloud-based design platform using that Firefly model. So you can now generate custom text and image effects using prompts in a hundred different languages. In this platform, you can also automatically remove backgrounds and animations uh, from visuals. And users can now access all of these AI features for free on the desktop web version. Sounds like a mobile rollout is coming soon. And what's really interesting with Firefly in general is that it's trained on Adobe's own content versus external content. So what did you make of this update, Paul? And do you see that being a really important differentiator, the fact that Adobe is rolling out these features trained on content that it has licensed to do to train on? It probably implies like the quality of the output isn't as good. I mean, that's what we've seen previously is like mid journeys, you know, image generation is, is going to be superior to Adobe's, but mid journey has questionable training data in their models. Mm -hmm. So I think in the long run, Adobe's probably taking the smarter route. And I think that a lot of enterprises that have are maybe more risk adverse are going to be okay with. Uh, the outputs in the near term maybe not being as high quality as others because uh, from a legal perspective mm. or an ethical perspective or both, they're more confident in how the model was trained and thereby the um, legitimacy of whatever they're creating within Adobe. So, yeah, I mean, I, again, Adobe's not new to this game. They've been investing in AI for a long time. They were a little slow on the generative AI movement, like they you know kind of delayed in their launch, but it sure seems like they're just going to come um, aggressively into the space and continue to build out capabilities. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on what they're doing. 
So Jasper, which is a leading AI writing tool and a friend of the Institute, just released a responsible AI usage template, which companies can take and adapt to their own needs to build their own AI usage policies. This template was actually used by Jasper to create their own AI usage guidelines, and it includes details on things like how your company will treat uh, transparency of AI usage, tool selection, bias, privacy, and a bunch of other factors. It also includes some guidelines for how employees should be trained on how to use AI. Um, you know, we're coming up next week, or this this coming week, rather, releasing some new 2023 state of marketing AI research. And as a quick preview of that, our research found that the vast majority of companies out there that we survey don't have these types of policies. So this is like a big step forward and really good to see them providing resources that companies can use. Like why, why do all these companies need to prioritize having these policies? It kind of goes back to the policies in schools. If, if you don't provide the policies and you don't provide guidance on what human-centered use of these technologies are, then your your employees and your leaders have no idea what to do about it. So you referenced the data. I think 22% of companies have, only 22% of companies have generative AI guidelines and, and 21% have AI ethics or responsible AI policies. My hope is when we do that research next year, that's like mm. 80 to 90%. Like I just, I see it as absolutely foundational to figuring this stuff out as you have to give guidance to your team of what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do and how to use the technology for good within the organization. So yeah, I'm a huge fan. And thanks to Megan, she gave us a shout out in her post announcing this, Megan Keeney Anderson at Jasper, um, for our original responsible AI policies that we put out under Creative Commons. And I, I just want to see more of it. Like I, I'm I'm love that they're putting it out there. I think the challenge for every organization is when you're putting these out there to live by them too. Hmm. And so I think a lot of organizations as they develop these policies are going to have to gut check are we adhering to our own policies and, and is everyone within our community, all of our vendors, all of our partners, do they adhere to these kinds of policies? And I think that's going to be a challenging aspect of this because, um, you know, not everybody follows the same uh, policies, but I think it's going to be important. I think you're going to start to see over time employees choosing the, choosing the places they work based on this kind of stuff, because mm. it's going to be as important as culture, in my opinion, to the future of businesses. So also policy related, the Associated Press just released public standards for how it's using generative AI. So it actually says overall that its journalists role of gathering and evaluating facts for news stories is not going to change despite the use of AI. They don't see AI as replacing journalists. Their guidelines include disclosing that the AP has a licensing agreement with OpenAI, and they also offer some guidelines for how journalists will and won't use generative AI, including the fact that they will treat any output from generative AI as unvetted source material. So do you expect to see similar standards and policies from every media outlet moving forward? Yeah, definitely. And I, I kind of liked how they position that as you know, just assume it's wrong and you have to vet everything and that it's our responsibility that the human is still the owner and has to take responsibility for the output. I think that's a really good baseline as you're building generative AI policies for your own company is that you cannot rely on the AI for the output. Like the, mm. the human has to be in the loop and has to be able to sign off on responsibility of the final product that goes out there, meaning verification of all facts and sources and citations and everything like that. It's a really good baseline. All right. Just a couple more stories in this packed week of AI news here. Um, we actually just saw that a U.S. district judge ruled on Friday that AI-generated artwork cannot be copyrighted. So this was in a response to a lawsuit against the U.S. Copyright Office. Um this lawsuit was from a guy named Stephen Thaler, who tried multiple times to copyright an image created by an algorithm that he was using that he had himself created. The Copyright Office rejected his request and stated that AI creations lack human authorship required for cop copyright. And after being rejected several times, Thaler then sued the office. But recently, the judge now has said that copyright has always required human creativity guiding the work. So to their credit, the judge acknowledged that AI art copyright is going to raise a lot of challenges here, but it sounds like at least based on this ruling that AI generated artwork cannot 
be copyrighted. So what are the implications of this for people and companies trying to use AI-generated art? And it seems like one of the first confirmations we've seen of the March updated guidance from the U.S. Copyright mm. Office that humans had to be the author, as they have been since 1870, and that um, prompting does not equal human authorship. So it, it, I think it's just the first of many cases we're going to see brought that challenge the copyright law. And until the U.S. adapts that law um, or, or not, <laughs> we're probably going to see a lot of rulings like this where they are not given the copyright they seek because they don't deem that the human was involved enough in the final output. So last but not least, there is a tiny company called Prosecraft that is no more after a viral backlash from some people that were enraged that the company used copyrighted material without permission. Specifically, these were authors because Prosecraft was a simple tool that basically just analyzed the style of different authors in different books. But the problem is it did so using models that scraped those books from piracy websites. Now, after this outcry from authors online who discovered this was being done, the founder of the site apologized and deleted it. And it was honestly more of a side project, it sounds like, than any large commercial concern. But he eventually did just delete everything and the data set used to train it. And though Prosecraft is kind of this minor target here, really, it is a symbol of some of the bigger issues, especially in creative industries, with these systems being trained on protected data. And interestingly, I found at least in this story, the creator of the company, he fully apologized. He's like, I understand why everyone's upset. He did say, like, what I thought would happen in the long term is that if I could show people this thing, they would say, wow, it's so cool and it's never been done before. It's so useful and interesting. And then people would willingly contribute their books and their manuscripts um, to this project. He says there was no way to convey what this thing could be without building first. So I went about getting the data the only way that I knew how, which was it's all there on the internet. So what are your thoughts on this, Paul? I mean, some interesting uh, conflicts between people wanting to build things, but also doing it in the wrong way. So we'll, I, I think we're going to need to go deeper on this topic as a main topic next week, because an article just came out that uh, exposes how prevalent pirated books are in the core foundation models that we all mm -hmm. talk about. And it's an amazing piece of journalism that actually found the source where it's coming from and the guy who created the source with all the pirated books, like 170,000 pirated books that are being used to train these models. So this is a much bigger problem than a single startup that had to shut down. And I, I guess that would be a, a teaser for next week's episode. <laughs> We're going to go a little deeper into this topic because it's it's going to be a fundamental challenge moving forward. And like I said, a great piece of journalism that no large language model could have written uh, sort of exposed everything that's happening in this space. And it'll be fascinating to see the ramifications of that uh, investigative journalistic piece. Awesome. Well, Paul, thanks for breaking down this week in AI for everyone. There's lots of topics here, obviously, but you make it a lot clearer and easier to understand kind of sorting the signal from the noise. So we appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. Another action-packed week. <laughs> we'll be back next week, maybe kicking off with the, uh, the pirated books scandal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to The Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.